Now some Pharisees came, and to test him they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and dismissal. But Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment for you. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Then in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. He said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. The Gospel of the Lord. Grace, mercy, and peace be with all of you this morning from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I have to thank Jeannie also because she made me feel at home the arrangement of that this is the feast proclamation was done by James Capers, who used to be at First Trinity, where I've been hanging out for the last four years, off and on. When Mark asked me to preach today, I said, sure. And then I read this gospel about marriage, divorce, and adultery. I thanked him profusely. He said I could change if I wanted, but I thought, no, I've got some stories after 50 years of ministry about marriage and divorce and adultery that maybe it can add some light to this text. And I looked back in my pastoral record book, and almost 30 years to the day, October 6, 1991, I preached on this same text with the theme, For Better or Worse. I don't remember most of my sermons, but I remember that one because near the end of it, a woman got up and walked out. And after worship, I went to my office, and there on my desk was a note that said, Your sermon judged and condemned me for my divorce. I won't be back. My heart sank. Well, we met later, and we talked, and she did come back. And she remains there to this day. I did my best to try and explain to her that what Jesus was talking about here in that context of that day and that time was about the ideal for marriage. And that I didn't make it clear, and I agreed that I did not make it clear in that sermon. Looking it over, I had indeed come down more on a judgmental side of things, and that wasn't helpful to her or to many others, I'm sure. Lesson learned. Words of grace overcome judgment and condemnation. Some of you might remember President Jimmy Carter from back in the day once openly confessing that he had committed adultery in his heart by lusting at another woman. He confessed that he did not live up to the ideal of marriage. 
Well, I read recently that he and Rosalind have been married now for 75 years. Close to the ideal. But in President Carter's view, not quite. Over my 51-plus years of ministry, I have officiated 468 weddings. The first was the wedding of my mother, which I conducted just a few weeks after my ordination. But that's another story. 468. That's a lot of pre-marriage counseling, a lot of rehearsals, a lot of rehearsal dinners, a lot of receptions. How many of those 468 have endured? I don't know. But if the statistics are on target, it would be about half of them. Or perhaps even less than half have endured. So many reasons. So many causes for the dissolution of so many marriages and why they couldn't or didn't live up to the ideal. As I looked at that pastoral record book at the names and the places of those weddings, I was struck by how many of the brides and grooms were only 16, 17, or 18. Maturity both maturity in age and maturity in faith is a factor. Most of the weddings took place in the church I was serving at the time. That would be Northwest Ohio and mid-Michigan, but also on the beach in Malibu, California, in a swanky private club in Toledo, Ohio, in a chapel in the woods in Hot Springs, Arkansas, in living rooms, and most recently in what have become trendy wedding venues like the Ice House in downtown Phoenix, a decommissioned Catholic church in Galveston, Texas, in city parks, family backyards. The venues have changed. But the words, the promises, they remain the same. Will you love, honor, comfort, and keep in sickness and in health and forsaking all others for as long as you both shall live? Out of 468 marriages, I never had one bride or one groom say, no, I won't do that. But the reality after the honeymoon tells a different story. Here's another marriage story from my past. On April 3rd, 2001, I got a phone call from a guy whose name I didn't recognize he had tracked me down by making a series of phone calls to find out where I was serving at the current time. He said he was calling to tell me that he and his bride were celebrating their 25th anniversary on that very day. And before they went out to dinner, he wanted me to surprise his wife by saying hello and congratulations. 
which, of course, I did. She was flabbergasted. His reason for calling me was that back in 1976, she was 18 and he was 21. And their families tried to dissuade them from getting married. But he said, you believed in us and you did the service. And we just wanted to thank you again and let you know that it has worked. One just never knows about marriages. It was a humbling moment for me, for him to take, make that effort to call me. And it reminded me again that God's grace is able to overpower all of our human liabilities. Another true story. A few years ago, I was back at the same congregation in which the woman walked out and left the note. I was there to preach for some special occasion. And standing at the door, shaking hands, following the service, a woman came up and gave me a big hug, and with tears in her eyes, she said, I just have to thank you for giving me permission to get a divorce back in the day. And it was true. I had done that because I knew the circumstances and believe that God's intention was not for a woman or a man to live in distress or danger for as long as they both would live, especially when the sinful circumstances involved would never change. The ideal would never have been a reality. Yes, this text, these words of Jesus are important. And the promises made during a wedding service are serious. And they're heavy. And they're not to be made glibly. To fulfill them takes hard work. Hard work. I used to sit in pre-marriage counseling sessions with prospective couples and tell them that they were going to have to work hard to make their marriage work. And they would look back at me with blank, unbelieving stares like, what do you mean hard work? We love each other. We are sexually infatuated with each other. We have plans. Hard work? What could go wrong? I see you smiling. What could go wrong? Well, sin happens. Even in loving, infatuated, well-intended marriage relationships, sin happens. Do I believe that Jesus' words still ring true? And are appropriate for today's wedding services, no matter where those weddings take place? Yes. Is the covenant made between husband and wife and God of paramount importance? Yes. 
The heart of any good working marriage is always going to be the willingness to work at it. And I think that was behind a lot of what Jesus was trying to teach those Pharisees in this lesson. To be able to say, I'm sorry. To be able to forgive. But then also to amend, to change, to repent of the sinful part of the problem. So that it doesn't break into the relationship ever again. The ideal is still the goal. As God's love for you and me is unconditional, so must the love in marriage that we profess be unconditional. When the ideal marriage becomes unattainable, we simply trust in the amazing grace of God who loves us even as we fall short of the ideal. And not only in marriage, but in any relationship, any venture, any mission that we undertake in the name of Christ. Divorce is a heartbreaking reality. It causes unfathomable pain to so many. But it doesn't have to be the last defining thing in one's life. Our Christian community must rally around those who are hurting because this ideal in marriage was not lived out. Pastors, Stephen ministers, and close friends must always be willing to encircle the hurting ones and offer words of love and hope and grace, not condemnation, not judgment. For we know that God in Christ Jesus is ever forgiving. I fall back on this saying. The resurrection means that the worst thing is never the last thing. That's at the heart of what we believe, isn't it? That the resurrection means that the worst thing is never the last thing. The worst thing is never the last thing because the grace of our loving God will always win the day when sin and despair seem to have won the moment. The resurrection of Jesus, the gospel, the good news about his suffering, death, and resurrection will always win the day and carry us forward into whatever plan God has for our lives. Amen.